Okay, good morning to all. It's a big day. Today's election day. I hope everyone's voting. I wrote an article a couple weeks ago invoking Rav Moshe's same as Tshuva. Rav Moshe says that there is a mitzvah. This is too loud. I'm lowering it. Rav Moshe says that there is a mitzvah to vote. He says we live in a country that is the most friendly, hospitable, welcoming, and warm to the Jews in history. And the way we show Akar Satov, the way that we express our gratitude, is by taking advantage of the gift and opportunity our ancestors could only dream of, and that is to vote. So I won't tell you who to vote for, at least not while we're being recorded, but... <laughs> now nah, I won't tell you who to vote for. Everyone should vote their conscience, and everyone should vote on their values, and everyone should vote. It's not a question of who you vote for, but make sure you get out today, show Hakara Sato for the gift that this country has given us, and make sure that you vote, and you get to wear a little sticker, so the whole world knows you voted. That alone makes it worth it. Pasha's told us, page 124, and we live in Florida, Palm Beach County, our vote actually matters. If you care about state income tax and school choice and Israel and gun control, and whatever you care about, your vote actually matters. It makes a difference. Unlike our brothers and sisters who live in other states, some of which maybe we came from, whose vote carries less weight, our vote actually matters. 100, page 124, Parshas Toldos. What do I say every week? Our Parsha picks up. Well, last Parsha left off. Chayesara left off. Our Parsha begins, Eila told us Yitzchak ben Avram, Avram holy as Yitzchak. As always, we give our overview, and then we will come back and continue exactly where we left off in our analysis of the Pesukim last year. So the parsha begins by providing this seeming redundancy. Ela told us Yitzchak ben Avram, this is the legacy. These are the offspring of Yitzchak, the son of Avram. Avram begat, which is a fancy word of saying, Avram was the father of Yitzchak. Well, if Yitzchak is the son of Avram, isn't it obvious that Avram is the father of Yitzchak? And Rashi is bothered by that question immediately. And Rashi tells us, why do we need to be told that? A miracle occurred. God intervened and made Yitzchak look exactly like his father, like Avram. And why was that important? Because the Leitzanei Ador, the scoffers and cynics of the generation, said, ah, Avram is an old man. There's no way this Yitzchak's his son. How did Sarah become pregnant? They couldn't deny she was pregnant, even though she was an old lady, because she was the one who was pregnant. But she, they could deny, they could accuse, fake news, Avram's not the father. Avram's not the father. Who's the father? Avimelech. I don't know what just happened in the recording. But all these years at Yitzchak, Avram couldn't produce a child. It must be that Avimelech is the, Avimelech is the father. So, Kersh Baruch Hu, God himself intervened, and God himself made Yitzchak look exactly like Avram. And we've discussed this in the past. Why would God intervene? So the Litzan Eidor, a group of cynics and scoffers, were making a false accusation. God suspends the rules of nature, intervenes, performs a miracle, all to respond to, all to combat the false accusation, the fake news of the Leitzanei Ador. Elamai, what do you see from here? The incredible potency and power of cynicism, sarcasm, and fake news. The Leitzanei Ador, the ability for anyone to manufacture their own version of truth on the internet, online or offline, the ability, and I'm, I'm not on both sides, on all sides, on every side, the ability for people to manufacture their own version and, uh, and, and present it to put forth an agenda is so odious, is, is so pernicious, 
has such a capacity to undermine that Hashem Himself has to intervene. And Hashem Himself has to make this, has to make this difference. Rabbi Soloveitchik saw in this Pasuk something much more broad, which we'll come back to, which is the idea that Avram is the old man. Avram is this transformational leader, this revolutionary, who introduces the world to ethical monotheism. But the world suspected, okay, you have this holier-than-thou Jew who stands on his soapbox and preaches to everyone how they should behave, who's really interfering with our convenient, corrupt life. But you know what? When he dies, so will his way of life die. With Avram, we'll go with this new movement. The movement so relies on its charismatic leader that when Avram dies, so will this new movement, so will this radical new effort. And what the Torah is testifying is, Eilat told us Yitzchak ben Avram, Avram only to Yitzchak, no. Yitzchak was the ambassador, he takes the baton. He picks up from Avram and he continues exactly along that line, exactly along that legacy. And that's a theme that we're going to see. We'll come back to it in a moment in the overview. But it's a theme that we're going to see in terms of the story of the wells and, and the like. So what happens? Yitzchak's 40 years old when he marries Rivka. We spoke last week. He was 37 in the Akedah. According to one opinion, he stayed up on Haram Moriah. He stayed up on Harabayas for three years and only descended when Rivka was ready to marry him. And uh, why? Because he didn't find out, according to Rabbi Nebach, he didn't find out about his mother's death until he returned and Rivka was in place to, so to say, replace her. He's 40 years old when he marries Rivka and the Torah testifies again to Rivka's genealogy. Rivka is the daughter of Lavan Ha'arami. She's the daughter of Besuel. Lavan and Besuel, the Aramite, Arameans. Why is the Torah testifying? We already know that from last week. So Rashi here also tells us in order to remind us how extraordinary that Rivka grew up in such an environment, so hostile to the values that Avram, that Yitzhak would hold dear, and Rivka, despite growing up in such a corrupt, immoral, depraved environment, she nevertheless emerges a righteous woman. Like a rose among the thorns, it says in Shira Shirim, and this is an allusion to Rivka, who is a rose among the thorns. Her father Basuel, her brother, love on their thorns. She emerges a rose among the thorns, even more magnificent, even more, even more beautiful because of it. She is barren. She struggles with infertility. She wants a child desperately. And finally, finally, Yitzhak Davin's Lenochach Ishto. We studied this, I think, last year, two years ago. Lenochach Ishto. I think it's the Svarna who says, Yitzhak wasn't davening for himself. God had promised him, don't worry. You're going to have children, you're going to have continuity, you're going to have a legacy, you're going to continue Avram. Yitzchak knows he's good to go. Maybe he'll have a co-wife, maybe he'll take on, just like his father had Hagar. Yitzchak's confident he'll have continuity. So he's davening the Nochach Ishto, he's davening for Rivka, because he's concerned, will she be the mother of his children? Will she be the matriarch of that legacy or not? It's Lenochach, it's on behalf of Ishto, because Akarahi. So Yitzchak Davin's Yatar, the Gemar Tzukah says, like a pitchfork turns over the hay, so too Yitzchak turned over the will of the Ribbon Shalom. Rashi comments that you can't compare the prayer of a tzaddik ben tzaddik, Yitzchak is righteous, the son of the righteous, compared to a woman who is a righteous woman, but the daughter of a, of a Russia, of a wicked man. It's a very kind of paradoxical Rashi. I would have thought the opposite. If you're the child of a Russia, all the more so, that your prayer should be valuable. You emerged, we just said, she's a rose among the thorns. All the more so her prayer should be special and effective. 
Why is it that a tzaddik ben tzaddik is greater than a tzaddik ben rasha? What's so the answer? I don't remember from whom, I apologize. Because to be a tzaddik ben rasha means if you have any moral compass, even if you grew up in the home of a rasha, but your moral compass propels you to do the right thing and to be the right way. And you're proud to distinguish yourself from where you come from. You're proud to have the contrast of your ancestors who did the wrong thing and you do the right thing. But to be a tzaddik ben tzaddik, I mean, can you imagine the pressure of growing up in the home of a gadol ador? How are you going to compete? How are you going to compare? You're going to come home and say, I finished a mesechta, I'm making a sin? Big deal, I finished Shas every year. <laughs> I had a good Shemona Esrei? Big deal, I'm the top davener on the planet. I control my thought? Big deal. To grow up in the home of a tzaddik? On the one hand, it's empowering. On the one hand, it's a privilege. On the one hand, you have the ultimate role model. But on the other hand, how do you compare? How do you compete? There's all these studies, not to compare, but second generation Holocaust survivors. Our own Chasi Yehuda's daughter is one of the, who's done scientific studies actually in terms of the genetics of second generation, what got embedded genetically from survivors into second generation. But you talk to second generation, I'm sure many in this room, and they talk about the challenge of a childhood. You know, you fell off your bike and scraped your knee. You're going to come home and complain to your parent who survived the concentration camp. I scratched my knee. I had a bad day in school. My teacher was mean to me. Like, what could you possibly do in your life? What could you possibly suffer in your life that could compare the suffering of, of your parents growing up in that home? That has to have an enormous, enormous impact. So Lahavdil, very different, but similar to grow up in the home of a tzaddik. How do you come home? What could you accomplish? What could you achieve? What could be the struggle? So therefore, the prayer of a tzaddik ben tzaddik in some ways is greater than a tzaddik ben Russia, Because to emerge a tzaddik from the home of a tzaddik, to strive, to aspire nonetheless to be righteous, when you can't ever rise to the level of righteousness of your parent, that is really impressive. It's even more impressive than the person who chooses righteousness over the wickedness that they saw in their home. That too was remarkable. But they chose righteousness over the wickedness. To choose righteousness when you know you can't compete with the righteousness, maybe that's why the prayer of the tzaddik ben tzaddik is even, is even greater. So, Rivka becomes pregnant, the prayer is effective. And this is the part we're going to pick up from last year, we'll study this psukim in depth. But, she's agitated, she feels the kicking, she goes and consults, she's told she'll have two nations. The first one is born as Asa, the second one is born in Yaakov. We'll look at this more closely. Rivka gravitates, or I should say first, Yitzchak gravitates towards Asav. And Rivka gravitates towards Yaakov. Discussed this in the past as well. Why do they gravitate in the wrong direction? Why do they gravitate to the wrong ones? So the commentary I've always found most compelling is that they both understood Yaakov for who Yaakov was and Esau for who Esau was. The question wasn't which one is a greater child. The question was which one had a better chance of carrying forth this legacy. Avram began this journey, Avram began this, this movement, and Yitzchak inherits this movement and tries to preserve this movement in a hostile environment. And which child will have the best chance of continuing the growth of this movement? Will it be the meek, studious, academic, bookworm, nerd, geek, pale, sits in the, in the library all day? Khalil, I'm not talking about Yaakov that way, but... I'm saying the image of such a person will it be the strong warrior, hunter, 
in the field who could confront any obstacle, who can't be manipulated by, by a lavan. Which one? Yitzhak thought the best shot was through Esav. And Rivka said, no, 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 you're underestimating my Yaakov. And if you fast forward to the end of the parsha, you can now better appreciate why Rivka designs this. I mean, if you study Parsha's Bracious, if you study Sefer Bracious, rather, they're the worst marriages, it's the worst parenting, it's the worst sibling rivalry, it's the worst of humanity. What kind of marriage Yitzchak and Rivka have? That Rivka takes a child? I don't know, I'd have a hard time reconciling my, with my wife if my wife conspired with my child to deprive me of the truth, to trick me, to manipulate me. I'm sure we could work it out, but it'd be, take a long time. I'd be, well, actually, if she listens later, it can't, we can't work it out. Don't do that. Don't ever do that. But it'd be very hard. Rivka's manipulating Yaakov against his own father, Yitzchak. Rivka goes to sleep at night on the pillow next to Yitzchak and doesn't tell him, I have these concerns about Esav, I think it's Yaakov, you need to give him the bracha. Now, what kind of communication, what kind of marriage? That's a separate time. That's a separate topic. Minimally, what you see from this is the Torah is describing real people with real flaws. It's not me saying it. It's the Ramban, of Hershon. It's a whole legacy of commentaries. Gedola Yisroel, who had no hesitation to read Sefer Bracious and say, these were extraordinary human beings, the loftiest, the matriarchs and patriarchs of our people. We should always question when can we rise to their level. We never will. We can't minimize, minimize whatsoever their greatness, but part of their greatness is their humanity. And therefore, we can aspire. Therefore, they can be our role models because of their humanity. But now we go to the end of the partial, we can understand that Rivka is specifically manipulating the situation. Because she maybe, instead of looking at it as depriving him of information or manipulating him, why don't you look at it as, we already know the Torah says that a husband should listen to his wife. Avram already got that instruction about Sarah. But Yitzchak is so stubborn. He's so obstinate. Every night the pillow talk is Rivka saying, look, you're underestimating Yaakov. I'm telling you our Yaakov, he may look like the bookworm, he may be brilliant, he may have a perfect score in his SAT and MCAT, but I'm telling you, He's the one. I'm telling you, you're underestimating him. He can do it. Yitzchak says, leave me alone already. You tell me this every night. I can't talk about this anymore. What are you talking about? He can't do it. I know him. I'm his rabbi. I'm in the yeshiva with him. The kid is a terrible athlete. And the kid's not social. The kid, he just sits with the book. I'm telling you, he can't do it. And how many times is Rivka Taka going to have the conversation? So you know what she does? She says, okay, let's prove to Yitzchak that Yaakov can do it. Yaakov, here's the deal. You're going to dress up as your brother and you're going to trick and manipulate your father. Your father thinks you can't handle the street. You don't have, you don't have street smarts, only book smarts. Let's show him. It's the only way that he's going to come around. And Taka, he comes around. And it also explains why at the end Yitzchak is not furious. Neither at Rivka nor at Yaakov. After Yaakov tricks his father, but before he goes to the home of Lavan, he comes back again in the end of our parsha, and Yitzchak gives him another bracha. Another bracha? Should give him a smack across the a fress on his pun. What, what do you mean another bracha? Okay, he's a little old for a patch, but he should tell him, I'm outraged. How could you have done that to me? But we understand in that context why he doesn't. Because he says, I've been made to see the truth. I understand why you did what you did. I was so stubborn. I was so blind. The only way that I could see that you have this in you is for you and your mother to have done what you've done. I'm not angry at your mother. I'm not angry at you. Go gesund, kum gesund, go. I understand you got to run from your brother right now, but you're the chosen one.
parsha comes full circle. If you see it in that context and analyze it in that way, it's, I think, a very, again, for me, it's a very persuasive way of seeing, of seeing the parsha. Esav comes home and he's starving, and Yaakov gives him food, and he calls it the red stuff, and that's why he's known as Edom. And I love this insight. After he sells it, in one breath, in one sentence, what happens? They cut a deal. Yaakov says, I want the Bechor. I want to be the firstborn, which had certain rights and the status of a priest of a Kohen. Not only then, but in perpetuity. Esav says, well, I'm hungry. And that red stuff looks pretty good. We've got a deal. Now the fact that Esav sold the birthright for a plate of chon is pretty pathetic and pretty weak, but also understandable. If in fact he came home and he was starving and he thought his life lay in the balance, you can understand people out of hunger make all kinds of decisions, sometimes even self-destructive ones or not in their best interest. We can understand that. What we can't understand is what happens next. What does Esav do? In one breath, Yaakov makes the trade, he gives him the food. In one breath. He eats, he drinks, he gets up, he goes. And he heads to the bar. He goes to the club. He goes back to what he disparaged, he spurned the birthright. What does that mean? Sometimes you have to part with something. I've given this muscle before. A person who runs out of money and they have to hock an heirloom of the family, jewelry their spouse gave them. And they go to the, what's the story that you go to? The pawn shop. They go to the pawn shop because they desperately need some cash. So they're going to go get rid of the jewelry that belonged to the great, great Bubby. But do they walk out of the pawn shop with a little skip in their step, a little hop, and a big smile, and head? they walk out with their head down, and they're broken, and they're, Nebuch, that was what they had to do in order to get the money. But they're broken. They can't sleep for three days after. They can't eat for three days afterwards. And all they think about is they do the right thing and the pain for which it took to part with that precious heirloom. What does Esav do? In one sense, he eats, he drinks, he satisfies his boich, he's got his cash, he's got a hop, a skip, and he smile, and he heads off to the club, to the bar. He doesn't do it sadly, or he doesn't do it with any sense of, of humiliation or hesitancy or reluctancy. He vayives. He vayives. Vayirav, there's another famine, because our Avos all had to experience their version of a famine. Yitzchak, like his father, thinks it's time to go to Mitzrayim, but he is a holy sacrifice. He's not allowed to leave Eretz Yisrael. And we have the story of Yitzchak and Gerar. And then we have the story of Yitzchak and the wells. What's going on with Yitzchak and the wells? I told you I'd come back to this notion that Yitzchak is the continuity of his father. So Rabbi Soloveitchik has a very, very beautiful insight here. He says, I'm going to read to you his words. Yitzchak's birth was connected with laughter. Right? His name, Yitzchak, is Tzchok. Sarah says, Tzchok Asali. And Avram also does, and Sarah is criticized, and Avram is complimented. According to some, and Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, Tzchok Asali Elohim. Everyone that hears will laugh on account of me. Rashi and Unklos render the word not as laughter, but joy. But other commentaries, among them Rabbi Yonason ben Uziel, Targum Yonason, translate the word laughter literally. People laughed at the event. They did not believe that Yitzchak would inherit Avram. That he, a young lad of the new generation, would continue to carry out Avram's visions and laws. That he would engage in building altars and calling on the name of God. When Avram dies, people said, his entire philosophy will perish. His altars will be dismantled. 
They did not hate Yitzchak, they simply belittled him. They laughed, they derided, but they did not hate. So they laughed. They said, ah, this new generation who's got Snapchat and Facebook and Instagram and social media, this new generation, they'll never stick with this Shabbos thing. This new generation is so addicted to the technology, they'll never stick with Shabbos. They'll never stick with kosher. They'll never stick with tznius. They'll never stick with honesty. Years passed. Those who were wont to laugh at Yitzchak in the hopes that Avram pinned on him suddenly began to ask, is Yitzchak really sincere in his efforts to resuscitate Avram's work? What's going on? They rubbed their eyes. Isaac Yitzchak was indeed continuing Avram's enterprise. He was fighting for the same ideals, doing the same things his father had done. And the laughter ceased. They stopped making jokes on Yitzchak's account and began to fight against him. In place of derision came jealousy and hatred. The scoffers, the Leitzani Ador, who were wont to bandy joke, to bandy jokes, stories, and slanders about Avram and Sarah, suddenly became the wicked of the time, who thought to crush Yitzchak. Now they recognized his existence. Now they felt hatred and jealousy. When they saw what was happening, the Jewish people, because of this new age, millennials with their technology and breakthrough philosophy, were not abandoning Torah. They were returning to it. It wasn't a progressive stream that was the strongest stream. They were disappearing. But it was the true Torah stream which was growing in size and influence. So now those who opposed it didn't laugh at it anymore. Now they were jealous. And jealousy leads to oppression and persecution, but also brings about respect. They began to hate Yitzchak, but they also began to respect him. In this attitude towards Yitzchak, we may discern the first victory of Avram's house. It's better to be an object of jealousy and hatred which leads to respect than an object of pity which is always accomplished, accompanied by derision and contempt. The insight of the Rav about Yitzchak and Avram, but also an insight. Rabbi Soloveitchik talked often about the Jewish condition after the Holocaust, where the world, the United Nations, the Christian world, the church, thought the Jews are no longer the chosen people, they'll disappear now, this movement is over. Holocaust, the Jews are no longer God's chosen, it's all over. They laughed and they scoffed, and now the Jews are here and we're here to stay and we're stronger than ever. And that has transformed into sometimes jealousy from others a form of respect. But it's certainly better than pity, which breeds contempt. So with this, Rabbi Salvechik describes, that's what it means. They filled in the wells of Avram. And Yitzchak redug his father's wells. What it means that Yitzchak redug his father's wells is he remained true to those values and to that tradition and to that, and to that Misorah. And that's how, in fact, he explains at the end, after he redigs the wells of his father, he builds him his Bayach, and he calls it in the name of God. And here the Rav writes again, when Hashem appeared to Yitzchak, Hashem identified himself as the God of Avram, but not God of Yitzchak. Yitzchak had not yet developed his own approach to Hashem the way Avram had done. Yitzchak redug the wells of his father, but now he's just imitating his father. He's just, he's just shadowing exactly what his father had done until now. This is more than a story about wells. The Torah is teaching that Yitzchak only drew water from the wells that his father had dug. He had not dug his own wells. He had not yet developed a unique religious approach. At this point, God promised to bless Yitzchak and multiply his seed, but only for the sake of Avram. Yitzchak realized it was insufficient to reopen Avram's wells. He had to dig his own. At the moment that he built his own altar and called in the name of Hashem, developing an edifice and approach of his own, Hashem was no longer merely the Hashem of Avram. Later, when God appears to Yaakov, he identifies as God of Yitzchak as well as God of Avram. And that's the introduction we have in our Shemun Esrei. Lokei Avram, Lokei Yitzchak, Lokei Yaakov. Not only Lokei Avram, Yitzchak, V'Yaakov. Each developed their own relationship. Rabbi Salavitchik felt very strongly this balance, which is very difficult at times. The notion between the Mesorah remaining true to our tradition, but at the same time being innovative. 
the same time being appropriately progressive. That one has to strike that balance between being true to where we come from, being true to the Mesorah and tradition we have, to redig the wells of our ancestors, of our forefathers, Elokei Nu, it's the God of our ancestors, Elokei Nu, but at the same time, simultaneously, Elokei Avram, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov. Not Elokei Avram, Yitzchak, V'Yaakov, Elokei Avram, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov. That each generation, each time, takes our tradition, our Mesorah, and we apply it in the world and in the generation in which we are, in which we are living. And that's how we saw. That's how we saw. Okay. Let's go back to the beginning of the parsha. Or to conclude the summary, Yitzchak, Yaakov tricks his father, he gets the bracha, Esau goes crazy, Yitzchak has this tremendous fear, and Yaakov has to run and flee for his life. End of parsha. Okay. We are going to continue where we last left off last year, which according to my notes is Parak Chavhei, Pasach Chavbez. Chapter 25, verse 22. Chapter 25, verse 22. In the article, Stone Chumash on page 124. You see, we didn't get that far last year. Page 124. Says the Torah, what's happening now? Rivka was barren. Yitzhak davened desperately on her behalf. And she becomes pregnant. And what happens? It's a difficult pregnancy. The children agitate her, they're kicking, they're wild inside her. And she says, which is difficult to translate. Translate those words. If so, if I'm enduring such a difficult pregnancy, I have such a. Baruch Hashem, I have seven children, and my wife could tell you much better than I, but their personalities were evident already in utero. One of my children in particular, I remember who is a lot of energy and vivacious in real life, when Yecheva was pregnant with her, didn't stop moving for nine months. Was doing somersaults and jumping jacks and gymnastics. So, so Rivka says, I can't sleep. This is, I, this is gymnastics going on. I got a gymnastics studio inside me. And If so, why this me? What does that mean? Lama why this? Why thus? Anochi for me. Why am I thus? You see the clumsiness of this, the awkwardness of trying to translate those words? Lama Zanochi. And what does she do in order to resolve that question, which we're not sure what it is? She goes to inquire from the Almighty Himself. She goes to inquire from, from Hashem. What's going on over here? So look at the Mephoshim. This Pasuk is saying, explain me. Rashi also is bothered that there's an awkwardness in understanding the Pasuk. I'm sorry. What is the activity going on inside her? Is this such an unusual pregnancy? And what does it mean when she says, in Cain, if so, Lama Zanochi? So the first understanding, we're all familiar with this is, that when she would walk by the base Medrash, Yeshiva Shem Ve'ever, Yaakov was clamoring to get out. And when she walked by the base of Zara, Esav was clamoring to get out. 
So every street she walked down, where there's a religious symbol, one or the other, there was all this activity going on of those inmates trying to escape, and she felt that level of activity. Okay, still, what bothered her so much about that? What bothered her so much? There was something much more existential happening. This wasn't just active fetuses. This is something much more existential that was happening. And what is that existential thing that was happening here? There was a collision, a collide of two different worlds, of two different worldviews. The fathers of two nations were about to be born and those nations would perpetually be in conflict. And which set of values would influence and mold and shape the world? People mistakenly think, Rabbi Soloveitchik writes, that the anti-Semitism in general began due to economic and political motivations. And the hatred of the Arabs towards the Jews started with the Zionist movement. The antipathy of the anti-Semite is not due to external factors. It's a prenatal tendency. We can appreciate this after Pittsburgh last week in this discussion, the rise of anti-Semitism that we've seen again. And the struggle of so many who want to understand it. How does it make sense? Why can't we break through? Why can't they just accept us and receive us? Why don't they recognize our contributions to the world and admire us? Why does anti-Semitism persist? Why are there anti-Semites? In the world of political correctness, in the world of ethics and morality, in the world of accepting people for who they are, whatever their orientation, their appearance, their identity, everyone's entitled to exist but the Jew. Everyone's entitled to be recognized for who they want to be, but the Jew. And we sit and we scratch our head and we wonder, why? We thought that we had earned a reprieve. After the Holocaust, the world felt bad, and there was somewhat of an outpouring of acceptance, love, or support. So what happened? And Rabbi Soloveitchik is articulating this harsh reminder that maybe it was a 70-year reprieve, but that was never a new normal. And that was our mistake to think it became a new normal. It's not a new normal. The default, the normal of reality is the Jew is hated. Now, I will offer this, this caveat that the reaction we've seen from Pittsburgh, it's been very troublesome to me. If you see anybody who's comparing it to Kristallnacht or Nazi Germany, or you think you can't begin to compare the outpouring of love, of support, all the way from the top down in this country, from elected officials to our peers to our fellow citizens of this country, the outpouring of love and support, the media, and so on, from every angle. Is there a spike of anti-Semitism? Absolutely. Is it alarming? It should be. Do we have to fight it and do all we can to stop it? No question. But we should be very hesitant and loath to make those comparisons which are inaccurate. But we have to remember that this isn't, the last 70 years has not been a new reality. It has just been a break from the reality of millennia. And we're back to that reality. And whether it's anti-Israel, it's anti-Israel disguising the anti-Semitism, but anti-Semitism at its core, or it's explicit anti-Semitism. It is what the Rav coined prenatal tendency, the categorical maxim of Chazal. Chazal tell us in the Sifrei and Baaloscha, Halacha biyadua she'esav sonei es Yaakov. The hatred of Esav for Yaakov is a permanent feature of our history. Halacha yadua. We have axioms of our faith which are immutable. And among the axioms of our faith that are immutable, realities that are unchanging is Esav Sone Es Yaakov. As long as there is a Jewish people, there will be those who hate us. We will never break through like certain other movements who've wanted justice and equality and opportunity. 
the Jew will always be hated. Halacha biyadua she'esav soni as Yaakov is a prenatal tendency. There's a fundamental conflict between the holy and the profane. The Jew is eternally different from the non-Jew. And the Knesset Yisrael is different from every other nation. And we should continue to develop relationships and to feel that we're both citizens and strangers at the same time and accept the love and support of our fellow citizens. But we would be wise to remember Halacha Biadua She'esa Sone Es Yaakov. That anti-Semitism can never be explained, it can never be understood, it can never be wished away, and it will be something we'll always have to combat from our parsha, from the womb, a prenatal tendency, habanim bekirba. So she says, Imkain, Rashi says, Imkain, what's the Imkain? Gadol tsar ha'ibur. Wow, here I was davening so long to get pregnant. <laughs> if I knew how much I'd be nauseous and throwing up and miserable and dizzy and dehydrated. And if I knew what this would do to me, why was I davening so hard for this privilege? If only I had known how difficult it would be, this is what I was davening so hard for? So Rashi has kind of a cynical view of what Rivka is saying. The Ibn Ezra says, Ibn Ezra takes a very different view, which is, the Rivka says, I read what to expect when you're expecting from cover to cover. And nobody has these symptoms. This isn't normal. I googled WebMD, and nobody goes through a pregnancy like this. Why am I the lucky winner of this unusual, miserable pregnancy? What's going on? There's something different happening here. There's something different happening. But the Kliyakar understands entirely differently. I love this Kliyakar. The Kliyakar says, So far, Kliyakar is quoting the same Rashi. Each is clamoring to get out when they pass the place they want to be. They ask, why did Yaakov want to leave? When he passed the Beis Medrash. What is our tradition? The Gemara Nida tells us, what are we doing in the womb? There's no Netflix in the womb. What is a person doing in the womb? They're learning Torah with the Malach. The angel himself is the Rebbe. So why is Yaakov clamoring to get out? So they explain, you could have the greatest Rebbe in the world, but if Yechavrus is an Esav, you got to get out of the yeshiva. you got to get out. So Yaakov's trying to get out. Which, right, it's, it's, it's cute, but it means... You could have the most amazing administration, you could have the greatest role models and teachers, but if your peers are a negative influence, you should clamor to get out. That's not a good place to be. So he saw Rashayna Davar Kane. Says the Kliyakar, let me tell you what was really going on over here. Yaakar is answering a question. Rivka now goes and she consults. She goes to Yeshiva Shemda Aver, she consults. And she's told, don't be upset. Don't be aggravated. I know that you're experiencing this unusual pregnancy, but all that activity, all that kicking is because you've got twins. Mazel tov, you're pregnant with twins. And one of the twins is going to be Yaakov and one's going to be an Esav. One's going to be the head of the base Medrash and one's going to be the head of the base of Urzara. And Rivka says, oh, that's what's going on? 
Oh, what a relief. Thank God. That's what the Pesukim say. Right? Keep reading. Here's exactly what's happening. You have two nations, two kingdoms. One will become mightier than the other, and the elder will serve the younger. And what happens? What's the next Pasuk? That's it. The nine months are up. Yitzchak psicha a few times. And she's ready to give birth. So, what do you mean? She's satisfied by that answer? Kliyaka is bothered. Why is she satisfied by that answer? Oh, what a relief. Twins and one's going to be the head of the base of Odazara. What's the relief about that answer? So Kliyaka says, you have to understand, Rivka didn't know she was having twins. She thought she had one child inside her. When she walks by the base of Medrash, this child's trying to get out. When she walks by the base of Odazara, the same child's trying to get out. And Rivka's biggest fear is, I've got one child with multiple personalities. I've got one child who blows with the wind, who can, he could be this way, he could be that way, he could be in the base Medrash, he could be in the base of Zara. He has no, no values, no principles, no scruples. This child is just multiple personalities. And that's the biggest fear that Rivka has. And when she learns it's twins, even though in learning it's twins, one of them will go to the base of Zara, she says, you know what? If I have two principal children, who stubbornly, passionately pursue what they believe, even if one of them is misdirected to the wrong beliefs, I can redirect them. But to have a child who has no beliefs, if you have a child who just walks by everything and wants everything, who has multiple personalities, who's schizophrenic in their spiritual existence, who whatever the latest fad or fashion or ism or moral is, embraces whatever it is of the time, that's Rivka's biggest fear. And she's relieved to know, no, 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 you have two principal children. They're not going to change with the times. They're not going to adopt whatever is the current way of thinking. They're principled. Okay, one of them has the wrong principles. We're going to have to work on that. But at least we're dealing with people who are engaged, people who are, people who are principled. The Kliyakar says, that's why Taka Rivka is, Rivka is relieved. Good. Where did she go? Rashi says, the base Medrash of Shem. She went to the base Medrash of Shem. It's an unusual place to go. Which base medrash did she have access to that you would have thought she might have gone to? The base medrash of? Which one did she have even better? Base medrash of? Avram. Her shver. Why didn't she go to the father-in-law? Her father-in-law is a big Rosh Hashiva. He's on the Moetzes Gedola Yisrael. Why didn't she go to her shver, her father-in-law's base medrash, base medrash of Avram? So the Sifse Chacham is bothered. The commentary on Rashi. Im lokein v'tidrosh Hashem iboylei. Why does it say v'tidrosh lidrosh es Hashem? It could say v'tidrosh es Hashem. My v'tidrosh. What does it mean? She had to go somewhere. Where did she have to go? If she was really saying, "I'm going to ask God," I'm going to ask God. I often reference. I have an evangelical friend I work with on pro-Israel activities. My buddy, Pastor Mario. So sometimes we're sitting and we're working and we're debating what we should do, and he says, "You know, Rabbi." Let's stop and let's pray on it. Let's ask God to open our eyes and give us some insight what we should do. Say, huh, we never do that. We should probably do that. That's a good idea to pray on something. So Rivka, if it means here that Rivka says, you know, I'm merely agitated, I'm aggravated, I'm trying to understand what's going on, I'm going to ask Hashem to open my eyes and give me insight to what's going on, then it should have said, it should have said, Vatidrosh is Hashem. She inquired of God. What's the Vatelech? If what we're doing is inquiring of God, you don't have to get out of your chair. You don't have to go anywhere to inquire of God. You can inquire of God from wherever you're sitting. 
What does it mean by Telech? Rivka had to get up and go somewhere in order to inquire from God. Why didn't she go to the base Medrash of Avraham? Her shver, her father-in-law, is a pretty impressive prophet. He's a pretty big rabbi. The Ishlomar, I'm sure it was annoying for him to have a son-in-law when you're a rabbi who doesn't ask you for advice and goes to a different Rosh Hashiva. The Ishlomar, Dakosh Baruch Hu Sovev Kein Lahala Me Avram Inyan Hayreon Shlo Yitztair Shrei Meis Avram Kodesh Yatze Esa L'Tar B'Zerah Kedesh Te Misaso B'Seva Tova. You know why she didn't go to Avram? She didn't want to upset Avram. If you're going to go with a question that could be upsetting, don't go to your father-in-law, no matter how big a Rosh Hashiva he is. Because we know the Torah is going to tell us, why was Yaakov making lentils that day, that Esav came in hungry from the field? Why was he making lentils? He was boiling a pot of eggs. Why does a Jew prepare bread and eggs? For someone who's sitting Shiva, the Siddha Savra. Who is sitting Shiva? Yitzhak. For whom? Avram. This was the day Avram died. Yitzhak was sitting Shiva. Yaakov was making him the Suda Savra, the meal for the mourner. Esav walks in, starving from the field. And there Chazal tell us that God made Avram die before he would witness that he had a grandson who was a Russia, Esav, before this would fully emerge. While well, he was still a young man. So similarly over here, Rivka was trying to protect Avram. And that's why she goes to the base Medrash of Shame, not the base Medrash of, of Avram. Good. Weiter. She's got these twins inside her. We're ready for the birth of these twins, which forever changed the world. As the Rav said, the prenatal disposition turned into the real conflict. The first one came out ruddy, Red, a reddish complexion, covered in hair, hairy little fella. And they named him Esav. What is Esav? Esav. Rashi says, what's Esav? Hakol korolokein, everyone called him that. Shahaya nasav enigmar besaro keben He came out looking like an adult. This hairy little post-pubescent child comes out of the womb looking like he's already mature. The word Esav says Rashi, the Rashbam says the same thing. Comes from the word... Shmo Esav says the Rashbam, Shmo Esav, he's Asui. Adam Asui Vinigmar, Hayabal Seyar. Esav Asui, complete, finished product, done. Esav is born, he is complete, he is a finished product, he is all, he is all done. Rashi and Rashbam both explain Esav the same way. So then, what does Yaakov's name mean in that context? If Esav is Asui, all done, what is Yaakov? So the Menachem Tzion, Rabbi Menachem Ben Tzion Zaks, the son-in-law of the Har Tzvi, the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim, and the grandfather of Mr. Landis in our shul, and the Sefer Menachem Tzion explains the following. He says, Yaakov's name reflects the exact opposite quality of Esav. Esav is Asui. What you see is what you get. He's a man who knows hunting, a man of the field. He's a primitive, boorish man. He's not grown, he's not matured, he's not developed any more later in life than he was the day he was born. What you see is what you get. Asui, complete from the start. Yaakov, the root of the word Yaakov is akev, heal. When you walk, at least this is what Benachem Etzion Zach says, when you walk, the heel is the first part of the foot that touches the ground. It represents the beginning. 
It's the first step. But a heel means there's a lot to follow. When you talk about a heel, it's the first part that touches the ground at the beginning of a step with more to follow. Where do we see this? We have an expression. Ikvasa de Meshicha. What is the Ikvasa de Meshicha? The heel of the Messianic era. If you want to say it's the beginning of the Messianic era, we're living in Ikvasa de Meshicha. It is the beginning. Ekev, the heel, represents the beginning. Esav and Yaakov, twins, enter the world. They have the same DNA, the same nature, but they're totally different. Esav is Asui, he's complete. What you see is what you get. He's done, he's finished. And Yaakov is Ekev, he's the first step. He's the first step on a journey of learning, of growing, of developing, of becoming better and better. We are the offspring of Yaakov. We believe that everything is a first step, but we're on a path of growth. Put one foot in front of the other and keep walking. Halacha, halicha, is a guide how we walk, whereas Esav is Asui, what you see is what you get. He is, he is complete. No one can tell him what to do. He's Asui. He's done. We know more about their nature. And then Yaakov comes out. And he comes out holding on to, the Torah tells us, Yaakov is for Akev. He's holding on to the heel of Esav. Yitzchak is a young man of 60 when he gives birth to these, when his fathers, he fathers these twins. Yaakov is holding the heel of Esav. Why is he holding the heel of Esav? Because he wants to get out first. Rashi says he was conceived first and he wants to get out first. Can Yaakov get out first? Why? Yitzchak is blo- uh, yeah, Esav is blocking the exit. You could be trying to pull his heel and get him out of the way, but Esav is blocking the exit. So there's no way that Yaakov can get out. So why is he trying? So Rav Melech Biderman quotes from Rav Moshe, Moshe Mordechai of Lalov, who says that when Yaakov saw that Esav was ahead of him and it was impossible to be born first, why even bother trying? And he answers by saying, this is the essence of Hishtatlus. When Hashem says take initiative and make an effort, it's not always because you think it's even feasible for the effort to achieve. It's because we need to do the effort and we don't know what God's plan is. So when Yaakov sees Esav's block in the exit and he's about to be born first, and it's impossible, he tries nonetheless. And was the trying for not? Was the trying a waste and for nothing? Fast forward 13 years, who ends up the Bechor? And I'll tell you why this struck me and why it's poignant to me. Because of something that happened just yesterday. Right? So this is Rav Moshe Mordechai of the love that without Hashem's help, you can't cross the doorway. But with Hashem's help, you can cross the sea. That never fail to take the initiative. The initiative is the deposit. And you don't know when that withdrawal will come. But even when it seems like it's impossible, do the Ishtadahs take the initiative? You never know. We're not a people that, that are afraid to reach for the impossible. I think I shared this several weeks ago. When Hashem tells Avram, go outside and look at the stars, because ko yezaracha, thus will be your children. And what does Avram start doing? He looks up and he says, one, two, three, four. Can you count the stars in the sky? It's impossible. I hope everybody signs up for our four-part science and Torah with Dr. Wolf. The fourth part is at an observatory at FAU where he's going to show us the sky, make it come alive. Amazing. So you can look up at the stars, you can't count them. It's impossible. Does Avram try anyway? Yes. Why? Because Avram's the father of 
making the impossible possible, of trying nonetheless. And that says the Lublina Rav, Rav Meir Shapiro, says that's what it means, ko echa. Hashem says, you ko echa. you're going to be the father of a nation who, like you, will turn the impossible possible, will strive for the impossible. What others will dismiss as impossible, will try it nonetheless. So Avram started counting the stars, and Hashem said, ko echa. And Yaakov reaches for Esav's heel, even though it makes no sense, it's illogical, it can't succeed. He takes the Hishtadlis, he does the effort nonetheless. And does it in fact pay off? The impossible became possible. Because Esav was blocking the exit, Yaakov couldn't get past him. But fast forward 13 years, Yaakov catches up and passes Esav. He becomes the Bechor. And why was I thinking about it this week? Because, and I don't mean to get political, but several years ago, those of us who thought that the Iran deal was a disaster and put Israel at risk, engaged in a bitter fight to try to overcome it. And in fact, the majority of Congress voted against it. Just not enough of a majority. And the opinion of America was against it. The fight was successful, but there were those who said, why'd you bother fighting? If you talk to the people, APAC and political advocates will tell you, they knew before the fight that it was, you couldn't win it. The president is just too strong. When his administration believes in something, their capacity to persuade, their, how they persuade, you can't beat it. So why bother fighting? Why bother fighting? And it was very demoralizing. I was in Washington when it was clear that it was going to pass. Nonetheless, it was very demoralizing. Fast forward. Fast forward. America reimposed the sanctions this week on Iran. Crippling sanctions on Iran. And those of us who were demoralized and thought we lost this battle and what it's going to mean and now Israel's going to be destroyed and the world is at risk and everything is over, Hashem knows better. And that Hishtabas and that effort and that initiative, you don't know when Hashem banks it and when it's going to pay off. Never be demoralized because it didn't succeed in the moment. You did the initiative because you thought it was the right thing to do. Be grateful you did the right thing. It's sitting and banked somewhere and you never know when a Kodesh Baruch is going to do the withdrawal. And I understand it's not a simple thing. There were those who were for it, those who were against it. Those who think it's great the sanctions are back. Those who think it's disastrous the sanctions are back. I'm not trying to tell you Das Torah about the Iran deal. I'm just using it as an illustration that sometimes we take initiative, we're demoralized when we think our initiative didn't succeed, but that's not the whole picture. Give it a year or two or five or 13. It's not the whole picture. For Yaakov, it wasn't the whole picture. He grabbed his seal and because he took that initiative, he ended up succeeding, taking the Bechorah, he ended up passing with the Ishtadlis. Sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we don't know. And we inherited the straight, that's the Koyezarecha. We have the same capacity, the Ishtadlis pays off, we inherited, we inherited this trait. Okay. The... Um, Esav is born, Kulo Kader Se'ar, he's covered in hair. Rashi tells us this reddish complexion shows that he's going to be Simon Shofech Damim. Person, he was predisposed to love blood. Now, the fact that he was predisposed to love blood, did that mean he had to be a murderer? No. The Gemara says, what do you do with somebody who's predisposed to love blood? What could you do with him? Turn him into a moil or a sheikhid. Use that desire to love blood and channel it in a healthy way. And this is part of a big discussion we're not going to have now. But the Jewish view, the Torah view, that we don't have categorically good or bad qualities. We have neutral qualities. How we channel them and direct them determines who we are. Do you know who was born with the same reddish complexion is also des- described as Admoni? David HaMelech. David HaMelech, when Shmuel comes to Yishai and says, which of your children, Hashem told me it's one of your kids, let's go through them one by one. He dismisses David, there's no chance. And he describes David as Admoni. He's reddish. 
And Chazal tell us that David, like Esav, had that predisposition. David took that passion and became the Jewish people's greatest warrior, the Jewish people's greatest poet. Esav took that passion and became a hunter, and became a womanizer, and became a drunkard. So having that quality doesn't define who you will be. It's a question of how it's channeled. How it's channeled. In fact, some commentators here say that had Yitzhak and Rivka not tried to give Esav the same education as Yaakov, Esav could have become a David HaMelech. Esav could have used those qualities to be a David HaMelech. But because they told Esav, why can't you sit in the base measures like Yaakov? How come Yaakov gets straight A's and you've got C's? You're an underachiever. You're distracted. You're always doodling. You're never in the... They tried to make Esav fit into the exact same mold, the same box as Yaakov. Esav needed a standing desk and Yaakov had a sitting desk, but they didn't give it to him. Esav needed a break and recess. They didn't let him walk around and come back to the classroom. Esav needed a little longer on the test or needed a little help of some Ritalin in the water fountain and they didn't give it to him. And so Esav ends up becoming this hunter. And maybe if he were parented differently without trying to fit everyone into the same mold and taking the individualization of each, they would realize their potential. Again, a lot more to say on that for another time. But I want to end with this. Maybe we should start next year with this because it's fantastic. Yeah, it's late. Hmm. Okay, we'll start next year with this. But I'll give, you, I'll give you a little preview about it. I'll give you a preview about it. Ish yodeat sayed ish sadeh. Very interesting description. It's a title, appellation. Esav is an Ish Yodeyat Sayed. He's not just a hunter, he's an Ish Yodeyat Sayed. And he's defined as an Ish Sadeh. He's defined as an Ish Sadeh. A field man, a man of the field. Not just a man who knows the field, not just a hunter who knows how to hunt skillfully. He is a man of the field. And Yaakov is an Ish Yoshev Oal, Ishtam. What's Yaakov? Ishtam Yoshev Oalim. Thank you. Ishtam Yoshev Oalim. Ishtam. Tam is usually an insult. He's a Tam. He's so, he's so naive. Naive. But here Tam is not an insult. right? Think about the Tam from the four sons at the table. And now, do you think Yaakov would be complimented to be that son, the four sons? We think of Yaakov as the Chacham, but Tam is the, is the naive Simple. But Yaakov here is an Ishtam, and he, in contrast to Ish Sadeh, he's Yoshev Ohalim. He's a man of the tent. What is a man of the field and what is a man of the tent? And how does it come full circle at the end of the Parsha? Where is Yaakov sent out to prepare to go to his father? To the field. Yaakov comes out of the tent and he goes to the field. That's significant in the paradigm shift that we began with that Rivka has manipulated the situation to finally persuade Yitzchak that Yaakov has what it takes to be the father of this nation. But Rabbi Salavitchik says this even more. Esav is entirely defined by the field. Yaakov is defined by the tent. But there are times that the man of the tent can go to the field when going to the field serves the agenda of the tent. And we'll start with that and fully expand on that. Mirza Hashem next year. Have a great day.